A warm welcome to all our listeners. My name is Zsófia Tóth The special guest of the second episode of Reflections from Budapest is Chris Costa, former special assistant to President Trump and senior director for counterterrorism at the White House. He has a distinguished 25-year-old career in the United States intelligence community and has held a number of prestigious positions in the United States government and military. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege. We also have my colleagues, Professor Jeffrey Kaplan, Lydia Pop, and Sharon Sugar with us today. Welcome. Very nice to see you all. And it's always great to see Dr. Kaplan again. <laughs> This is going to be a two-part podcast. The first part will be on our guests' background and on policy issues. Uh, Mr. Costa, you have an impressive resume. May I ask you what attracted you to a military career and the and the intelligence community in the first place? Yes, well, thank you for the question. I always knew I wanted to pursue a career in the military. My dad was a former Marine Corps officer, a US Marine Corps officer, and I really wanted to follow in his footsteps. My path took me into the army. I don't want to get ahead of the narrative, but the bottom line is I was always interested and animated by the idea of service to my country uh, and to serve the nation and the military. But as an intelligence officer, I uh, clearly uh, took a different path from my dad, but that path really started in 1972 when I was 10 years old and I saw the consequences of terrorism watching the Munich games, the Olympics in Munich in 1972 when Israeli athletes were held hostage and uh, subsequently uh, 11 of them died in the, the counterterrorism operation. And I use that term very, very liberally because the Germans learned some significant lessons about counterterrorism. And I subsequently have worked with the GSG-9, the counterterrorism forces from Germany, and I consider them great partners. So in short, I was always interested in serving the nation in the military counterterrorism had an interest for me even when I was 10 years old, but I read some books about the CIA and being an intelligence officer and somehow I knew that real, my real interest was somehow blending all of that together and I was very lucky to do that in my career. How would you sum up the gist of military and intelligence work? So I sum up my work as uh, essentially collecting intelligence that in the end, I like to tell people my role wasn't stealing secrets. That's a euphemism for people in the human intelligence business. I mostly provided access to terrorists, our enemies in combat zones, in Afghanistan, throughout the Middle East, and in Iraq in particular. I served in the first Gulf War and I served in the second Gulf War. But mostly my work was providing access to actors that wanted to do us harm on the battlefield. And I felt like it was a noble endeavor. It sometimes can be dirty, gritty work, but I felt like I saved US and coalition lives by the intelligence that I was able to provide. So as you mentioned, you work in a number of countries in the Middle East and in South Asia. With our research, we are going to go in on fieldwork trips in several Middle Eastern countries. Can you share some of your memories from Pakistan and perhaps from Iraq? So my trip to Pakistan was usually 
confined to Islamabad. So I am very aware that I didn't have the opportunity to really appreciate the Pakistani people. My engagements were with the US Embassy and Pakistani intelligence officials. I've been to the ISI headquarters and it was a theme that the United States consistently, it was a drumbeat uh, that was very similar from 9-11 forward, really uh, trying to uh, work with the Pakistanis and get them to do more when it came to counterterrorism. Of course, the Pakistani perspective was we were doing, from a Pakistani standpoint, doing an awful lot to counterterrorists. And accepting a great deal of risks to, to the nation itself. And I have to agree that the Pakistanis have lost uh, military and intelligence officials uh, as they wage a fight against the Pakistani Taliban and against Al-Qaeda. That said, we also know the Pakistanis have a um, penchant for playing both sides. Uh, maybe that's due to their necessity to survive in a really tough neighborhood, but they weren't always upfront with the United States, certainly. Um, but uh, the Pakistani people that I did manage to talk to, I was very impressed by their hospitality. Um, but again, never had the opportunity to get to the Hindu Kush and uh, to, to walk uh, the ground in Pakistan outside of Islamabad. The DEA was also very involved in Pakistan. And could you talk a little bit about the impact of the drug trade on terrorism and violence in Pakistan and in the region, including Afghanistan? So I can talk more about the Afghan perspective. I mean, clearly, when you drove anywhere you know, south of, uh, of Kabul, particularly when you get down to Kandahar and that part of the country or in Gardez Valley, you would find poppies, poppy fields, and you recognize that the individual poppy farmer was just trying to survive. Um, candidly, I did not focus on counter drug work. In fact, in my time in Afghanistan, principally the Brits were involved with um, alternatives to poppy growing. Now, you'll note that the Taliban are going to try to curtail uh, poppy growing. That is going to provide a significant backlash. They are going to deal with what Western countries had to deal with. If this is the only source of income for a poor Afghan that's trying to feed his family, they are going to uh, struggle to eradicate the crop. So that's going to have significant security ramifications for the Taliban. Um, I will share this vignette. I did conduct an operation with the Drug Enforcement Administration while they were dealing with sources that had information uh, on the drug trade in Afghanistan. Uh, the DEA agents I worked in Kabul circa, I think, 2005, also came across counterterrorism information. Frankly, they came across information about a, um, a cell of individuals that wanted to attack Western targets, an IED cell, an explosive cell um, that was uh, out in the outskirts of Kabul. Based on that, we put together an operation. Uh, the Canadians 
uh, provided the command and control. I provided direct access to the DEA and their source. And we subsequently apprehended an individual that had a couple kilograms of explosives that was destined to, to kill some uh, Western or NATO targets at the time, or ISAF targets, security administration force targets. So frankly, that just underscores the notion that the drug trade is inextricably linked to the insurgency, and it's very hard to parse out where the drug trade begins and where it ends, because it's a source of income. And sometimes um, the funding will ultimately go to you know, IED cells and uh, insurgents. So it is a really, really tough problem, uh, Jeff, and I'm just not sure uh, how the Taliban are gonna reconcile uh, the security issues. But to be uh, blunt, I did not have to focus on the counter drug uh, problem, uh, aside from my one operation that was successful with the DEA in Kabul. As you may know, um, our current project deals with violence against Christian communities and institutions. Um, religious conflict often occurs for complex reasons where the driving force behind violent conflicts are complex. Um, what we are seeing, for example, is that violence and discrimination are motivated not only by faith issues, but by factors like uh, tribalism. Can you tell us a bit about your work on tribalism? So if I understand the context of your question, it's about tribalism. Um, just a little more uh, clarity on and specifics on, on, are we talking about tribalism in Afghanistan? I might have missed the first part of the question. Um, not, not only focusing on Afghanistan, but in general. Yeah, I think that part of the question was, um, she, she's referencing the project that we're doing, which is violence against Christian communities and institutions around the world, and that some of the reasons for that violence are complex. They're not simply about religion. They have a lot of issues, and um, tribalism and the new tribalism, tribal conflicts, are a big part of that, which you've done a lot of work on. So um, I think she was inviting you to talk a little bit about tribalism and what it can do. Hey, thank you very much, uh, Jeff. I was just having problems with the with the volume, but that's an excellent, excellent question. And uh, yes, uh, Jeff essentially guided me in my early, my first foray, foray into academic research. Um, I had done uh, some field work uh, during my deployments, if you could call it that. And Jeff certainly has done a lot of work on the Lord's Resistance Army. And then we merged some of those ideas and reflected on the idea in the concept that terrorism and political violence, as I think your audience will appreciate, there are a great deal of, of causes and grievances and certainly the demographics are varied. There is no one constant, but what we kind of teased out is this notion that tribal factors was one of many factors that uh, is part of the violent violence in the narrative for causing one to commit acts of political violence. So we really, uh, wanted to research that a little bit. And we went back through our study and examined uh, tribalism in the days when 
Alexander the Great executed an exhibition across Afghanistan. And we realized tribal factors are one of many, many factors, and uh, it should not be dismissed. It should be understood. And again, it's not a principal factor, but it is another factor for cause and consequences of political violence. And uh, really, we, we wrote a, uh, a scholarly paper on that. I think uh, the, the themes really resonated with a wider audience, uh, but it's complex. There's no one reason for political violence but uh, certainly a tribal factor is significant. And if you present that to somebody who may be incarcerated and went through the radicalization process, they won't recognize it until you talk to, to them about it, but then they'll say, that makes sense. I never consciously thought about tribalism, but now that you represent that, now that you explain it, it makes sense that that was somewhere in my psyche, in my subconscious. My next question refers to your work at the White House. Uh, what was it like to work for the former president? Did you have a day-to-day -day, uh, relationship? And there are all sorts of things uh, one has heard about the former president that uh, make him look like he is very controversial. Was that your experience with his administration? Well, thank you very much for the question. It's one of my favorite topics because I was very, very proud of my service at the White House during the Trump administration. But I want to make clear to your audience that I was not a political appointee. So my job was to be very much focused on counterterrorism, aware of political dynamics, certainly from a policy standpoint, but really focus on being well-informed by intelligence and delivering the best possible options to the president of the United States for counterterrorism policies, as well as for um, hostage matters, because I also was responsible for hostages, my team, I should say, of 15 individuals from across the intelligence community who worked for me. So I was very, very uh, disciplined at making sure with a straight face, I could deliver the best possible options. More specifically to your question of the president, I probably interacted a dozen times with the president. And this surprises people, it shouldn't, but my interactions were wholly positive, but I wasn't in the inner sanctum. He was, I was one removed from the president. So I spent most of my time with the interagency, meaning uh, the CIA, FBI, National Security Agency, you pick the, agency, if they had a role for counterterrorism, I would be the convening authority to pull them together to work through policy issues along with my team. And, and that was a really important job. So the policy output from those interactions would in turn become a recommendation to the president. But in many cases, I was dealing first with the nat National Security Advisor, General McMaster, or Mr. Tom Bossert, the Homeland Security Advisor. In some cases, I was dealing both with both of them collectively or separately. So I had a lot of work to do to make sure 
that my bosses were well prepared to speak to the president of the United States and to principals from uh, the Secretary of State to General Mattis at the time, who was the Secretary of Defense. Um, but my interactions with the president were wholly positive, uh, but also I was very, as I said, very careful to deliver the best options to the president without um, you know, any concern for many of the political uh, uh, machinations that were going on behind the scenes. Just as a follow-up, um, President Trump was publicly portrayed as being markedly uninterested in intelligence briefings and further portrayed as being rather hostile to the intelligence community as a whole. Was that your experience or is there any truth to that perception? So, I mean, you all have seen and read uh, what I have read. My interactions, I've, I never saw the president take a brief uh, on, you know, a, a uh, presidential daily brief. And even if I did, I would be loath to share the, the interactions that I saw. But I will tell you uh, on September 11th, 2017, we provided a state of the uh, of the world as we saw it on counterterrorism, and it was very well received. And principals were in the room. I was in the Oval Office, and I thought the president received that briefing like any president would receive a serious briefing on where we were as a nation and with our foreign partners. So we began to shape what became the nation's counterterrorism policy that was subsequently, or strategy, I should say, more specifically, the national counterterrorism strategy was published in 2018. We framed that strategy while I was at the White House, and I was very proud of the output. So that one particular interaction was extremely positive. And the second interaction uh, that was very positive, and again, it underscored, in a sense, a briefing. We told the president the good news of a recovery of a hostage, uh, Caitlin Coleman and her children, who were recovered from Pakistan and, and uh, returned to the United States, recovered. Uh, successfully, uh, and I, I can report to, to this audience that they are doing well, the kids are healthy and well, and I frequently interact with Caitlin uh, as she tries to raise those kids that were kept in captivity. We briefed the president on that. He was very delighted and excited with that very successful operation. So my experience, my direct experience was wholly positive. People don't like to hear that. They want to draw me out. But uh, candidly, I can only report that my interactions were positive. And if they were sensitive briefings to the president, I would never be one to talk about that. Um, but others clearly have leaked their, their points of view. Um, and the president, candidly, uh, has been very vocal on his perceptions of the intelligence community. 
One last question about your experience with the Trump administration. So many former Trump administration officials have complained that their future employment prospects were damaged because of their association to President Trump. Did this affect you in any way? That is a terrific question. No, on the contrary. I mean, I left the Trump White House and immediately I was hired to be the executive director of the International Spy Museum here in DC. And I hope everyone, particularly you guys, come visit me in Washington, DC for a, for a behind the scenes tour. But I have had one job uh, since I left the government. And I will underscore, I've been invited to do many, many other things. I don't want to oversell myself. I've been very lucky and fortunate. Uh, but I'm very happy at the Spy Museum, but I've had many other opportunities and offers. And I think that if you establish a relationship or a reputation, better said, as a professional, that allows you more options. At the same time, there are some people by being moderate in temperament, in, in politics, I'm also vulnerable to true believers that thinks I wasn't rabid enough or I wasn't a believer enough and I was not uh, outspoken enough. So I, I can live with that criticism because I want to model behavior as a intelligence professional, somebody that respects the office of the president, regardless of who it is in my job is to really educate the public now in a nonpartisan fashion. So as an ending note, uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what the Spy Museum and what its activities are? Yes, I would love to talk about the Spy Museum. As long as you guys promise me you're going to come visit. Um, so the Spy Museum has been in D.C., since 2002. We moved to a brand new building across town in 2019, a, an amazing architectural design. And we are able at the Spy Museum, over time, we will have some 7,000 artifacts that we can rotate in our exhibition space. Uh, we have artifacts such as the ice axe, that killed Trotsky. So we will talk about covert action. We will talk about analysis. Yes, I'm going to repeat that again. That we so have cool. <laughs> the ice axe that killed Trotsky in 1940. So that I'm going a little bit out of order in kind of a, a mental uh, uh, frame of reference I have, but that underscores the idea that intelligence services worldwide use covert action. Uh, and have tools of assassination. And of course, uh, the ice axe figures prominently into history. But that's our covert action gallery that underscores uh, covert action as an option for intelligence services uh, the, from the Bay of Pigs to modern day Afghanistan. I even tell a story in a, in a theater, a real spy story on operations that I was involved with in Afghanistan. I responsibly tell a story of handling a Taliban source. So that's covert action. We also have a gallery for analysis. You can do a red teaming exercise and learn how, uh, how the intelligence community assessed the intelligence 
on the bin Laden compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. So you'll hear uh, the, the backstory for that operation to include the analytical rigor that went into that operation. And of course, I already alluded to my favorite area of the museum, and that is stealing secrets. Although in parentheses, you can put getting access to terrorists. And we talk about both in our human intelligence collection. We have Enigma machines for signals intelligence, code making, code breaking, and technical intelligence. Uh, when you guys come to the museum, I'll talk to you about Howard Hughes, the billionaire, and how he supported the CIA in a major, major operation done in the 1970s. So if hopefully I'm demonstrating to you how excited I am about the museum, you can walk, uh, and this might be of interest to your audience, you can walk from West Berlin through Checkpoint Charlie or through a tunnel into East Berlin. So you'll get a sense for what it was like in communist East Berlin to include a hotel room that would have been filled with clandestine cameras and, and uh, tools of espionage. So uh, we are very excited to uh, tell the stories of counterintelligence. We tell the story of interrogation and of course, terrorism. We also, though, I, I wanna foot stomp. We also have a, um, a letter that George Washington actually wrote to an individual by the name of Nathaniel Sackett with very specific directions on how to run an intelligence network. So George Washington wasn't just the first president of these United States. He was also a bit of a spy master himself. Mr. Costa, thank you so much for your time. The second part of the second podcast is coming soon. Don't miss it. Thank you very much. Thank you.